thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. stimulate new nerve cells to form in our brains or are we stuck with the number of brain cells that we are born with we discuss this and the implications with professor fred gage from the stork institute california many of us believe that the brain is the seat of our awareness our consciousness of knowledge of who we are and the site of all our memories and if it's changing and new cells are being are dividing uh, how do we have any constancy? How do we have any sense of self that's retained throughout life? And we'll be speaking with Professor Rick Livesey from Cambridge University, who has been busy plucking hair from people's heads and using hair follicle cells to create brand new functional brain cells. This is the Naked Neuroscience Podcast with me, Dr Hannah Critchlow, and brought to you in association with the Wellcome Trust and in partnership with the British Neuroscience Association. Kicking off the programme, people have estimated that we have about 100 billion nerve cells in our brains, with about 100 trillion supporting cells and connections. Traditionally, people thought that this number was it for life. But since the 1960s, there has been a growing body of evidence that new nerve cells are born in particular regions of the brain, including the dentate gyrus of the hippocampus, a key brain region important for learning and memory. This natural birth of new cells in your brain is called neurogenesis and it's in a constant state of flux, as Professor Fred Gage from the Stork Institute, California, explains. Neurogenesis is not a stable phenomenon. It's affected by all kinds of things like learning and exercise and just how much you stimulate yourself with new and exciting experiences will increase neurogenesis, whereas sedation, stress, high stress levels, and aging can affect it in a negative way and decrease it. So everybody's different, and, and it's, being, it's so regulated by experience, it would be hard to get fast numbers in regular individuals, so it's better controlled in experimental animals where you can control the environment a little better. It turns out that if you take a normal, healthy animal and shift them into what we call an enriched environment, a large chamber filled with uh, interesting objects that they can explore. They move around in, burrow, nest, uh, and you leave them in there for one month. And then you count the number of newly born brain cells. You find that there is a, a dramatic increase in that core of animals compared to genetically identical, gender same, same age, everything exactly the same. Uh, in fact, when you count the total number of neurons in this area, uh, in a mouse, it's about 300,000 neurons. 
if you put them in the chamber and it's an rich environment for a month, you can count 350,000. So there's a 15% increase or 50,000 new neurons are added to the dentate by virtue of being in an enriched environment. That's incredible. I mean, and then this was in adult rabies. These were in adult animals. If you take that same paradigm and you use aged animals where you've got a decline in neurogenesis, a dramatic decline by an order of magnitude, the enriched environment will increase neurogenesis. There's another feature of this, and the enriched chambers had uh, running wheels in them, and you couldn't really determine whether or not the increase was because of the running wheels, the exercise, or was it because of the enriched environment. So uh, subsequent experiments were conducted isolating out just the enrichment from exercise, and it turns out that these two experiences have different effects. Uh, normally, when neurogenesis occurs, it takes about a month to two months for the cells to fully mature into neurons. And in that process, under, let's say, standard conditions, a fair number of the cells don't make it, say 50% or so don't make it. Only about 50% of the cells that are born early on actually survive. But if you put them into the enriched environment, now nearly 80% of the cells survive. So the increase in neurogenesis that is seen is a result of a survival effect rather than anything else. However, if you just put them into a cage with a running wheel where they have exercise, they voluntarily do this, of course, and they, they actually will work to get a chance to run in the running wheel, that doesn't have much of a survival effect, but it increases the stimulation or the proliferation of the cells. So the increase in neurogenesis that one sees in, from exercise appears to be because of proliferation, whereas the increase from enrichment is for survival. And if this translates to humans, and that's, I mean, that's an incredible finding, isn't it? If, if we exercise more and also stimulate ourselves more, then we will have new nerve cells being born at a higher rate and surviving as well. That's right. There are a couple of studies that have looked at this. One is using what's called functional magnetic resonance imaging, which measures basically metabolism and blood flow, and taking humans that have had exercise over a period of uh, eight weeks were imaged repeatedly, every, I think about every three weeks as they were exercising. And what was determined was that those subjects that were exercising regularly showed a long-term increase in blood glucose utilization just in this dentate gyrus where uh, new, new neurons are being formed. And then it, it was done both in humans and in mice. And in the mice, they could also see this imaging increase in the dentate gyrus. But if you blocked neurogenesis from coming, you didn't get that increase in, in the fMRI signal. So it does, at least it's correlated uh, both between what's happening in mouse running or exercise, let's say, and humans. Once these new nerve cells have been born, they also have to survive, and they also have to form a fully functional circuit with the existing neurons as well. That's right, and I think that's uh, sometimes overlooked because it's so remarkable that these cells are being born alone. But it, it takes a good two months from the time that the cell divides initially from the stem cell to give rise to what we call the neural progenitor cell, to the time that they 
send out their processes, receive 5,000 connections from their uh, inputs, and then send their axon out to make contact with the target cells. It takes about two months to do that. And this is a, a very prescribed pathway where they need to go through certain stages of maturation. And it's, it's crucial that the cells are allowed to go through these stages and not rushed through this in order to make a fully functional cell. And as well as kind of decreasing our stress levels, exercising a bit more and engaging more with our environment, are there other ways that we can promote neurogenesis? Are there drugs that we can take? You know, this is a very, very hot area of investigation right now where uh, biotech companies and pharmaceutical companies are in the process of developing drugs. And I, I know that there are companies that have drugs at various stages of development for increasing neurogenesis. That was Professor Fred Gage from the Stork Institute speaking about how exercise and new experiences stimulate the birth of new brain cells. Coming up, we'll be tackling some of your questions and finding out if stem cells could cause cancer. And we'll be hearing about a hot new technique that gives birth to brain cells in a Petri dish and could revolutionise the way that we study Alzheimer's disease. But first, it's time to take a look at the top stories from this month. I'm joined by Emily Jordan, doctoral researcher at the Department of Experimental Psychology, Cambridge. So the first paper is uh, very exciting, and some scientists at the University of Virginia actually found a way to improve maternal behavior in mice. Dr. Danielle Stolzenberg could improve behavior in mouse moms. So mice usually do a behavior after they give birth called retrieval, where they carry their pups back to the nest. And these scientists wanted to see if they could induce this behavior in virgin mice who actually hadn't given birth. So they put a chemical in the drinking water of these mice that would increase histone acetylation. And this is a process that increases gene transcription in the brain. The scientists then found that the previously non-maternal mice then readily retrieved pups like a good mouse mom would. And then the researchers looked in the brain in regions that are important for maternal behavior. And they found that certain genes that are crucial for maternal care were actually upregulated in these mice that had never even given birth. So they had promoted maternal care in these virgin mice. What are the implications of this research? I mean, in what way does it help our understanding of pregnancy perhaps or, or post-birth care? Usually moms undergo a vast array of hormonal changes and if you haven't gone through pregnancy and birth you as an individual wouldn't have those hormonal changes but you can still provide maternal care. So this experiment really looks at uh, particular brain regions and genes that could be affected by experience such as just being around infants that would also provide the same brain changes that would induce maternal care. And now moving on to the second paper. So the second paper looks at adolescent impulsivity and the brain networks behind impulsivity. It was uh, conducted by a large consortium of researchers who imaged about 2,000 adolescent people looking at their impulsive behavior. It was headed up by Dr. Robert Whelan and Professor Hugh Garavan at the University of Vermont. What they found was that when they screened a large population of impulsive adolescents, a lot of the impulsive individuals performed exactly the same on a common task of impulsivity. They then wanted to look in the brain to see if there were the same brain networks at work or different brain networks in people who had ADHD and also people who had begun initiating drug use at a young age, because we already know that impulsivity is a common factor in both ADHD and in uh, drug addiction, and that, that stop signal test performance can predict both of these behaviors. 
It wasn't known, however, if the brain uh, mechanisms behind both of these disorders were the same. And these researchers actually found um, that there were two uh, different networks at work. Is this going to be helpful as a diagnostic tool or is it really more getting to grips with an understanding of what's happening in the brain, so a brain correlate for these different behaviours? It's really about understanding the underlying mechanisms behind both addiction and ADHD because the behavioral predictors of both of those disorders are quite similar. All of those people seem to be more impulsive than normal controls. And actually knowing that there are two different patterns of brain activity that could explain um, these impulsive behaviors might provide novel targets for both drug addiction and ADHD. Brilliant, thank you. And moving on to your final paper. So the third paper I found this month looks at social network modulation of reward-related signals. It was published in the Journal of Neuroscience, and the work was carried out by a grad student called Dominic Ferrari. Uh, The researchers asked participants to play a guessing game with a teammate who was either a friend, a stranger, or a computer. And during the game, the scientists measured physiological excitement and also activity in reward areas of the brain. They found that when participants got a correct answer in the guessing game and were working with a close friend, they showed a greater bold response in the ventral striatum, which is an important reward-related area in the brain. And the participants also showed increased skin conductance, indicating physiological excitement. People who had worked with a closer friend reported that their experience had been more positive and rewarding. So that was showing the scientific data supporting the idea that sharing experiences with close friends makes experiences more rewarding and more enjoyable. Thanks to Emily Jordan, doctoral researcher at the Department of Experimental Psychology, Cambridge University, for her top neuroscience stories of the month. Still to come, we'll be answering your neuroscience questions, including finding out if stem cells could be used to restore sight in blind people. But first, a little bit more neuroscience news. Is food the drug? Obesity was thought to be associated with an increased drive of the entire brain reward circuitry. But published in Nature Neuroscience, David Wallace and colleagues at Yale School of Medicine found that in mice, increased appetite for food was associated with decreased novelty-seeking behaviour and less interest in reward from drugs like cocaine. They found this out by disrupting nerve cells in the hypothalamus of young mice and observing feeding and drug-seeking behaviour. And they think that altering the food network early on affects impulsivity and drug reward circuits later on in life. Next up, HIV toxins in the brain. Elicio Eugenin and colleagues at the Albert Einstein College of Medicine, New York, found that the HIV virus weakens the blood-brain barrier, the network of blood vessels that keeps harmful chemicals out of the brain. HIV does this by overtaking a small group of supporting cells called astrocytes and releasing toxins into the brain. Published in the Journal of Neuroscience, these findings may help to explain why some people living with HIV experience memory loss and learning challenges, and these results open up a new way of treating HIV for the future. And finally, the hypnotic powers of suggestion revealed. Dr Jan Kojan at Geneva University hypnotised people, telling them that their left hand was paralysed. He then asked them to try and move their arm whilst photographing their brain activity as they tried, and failed, to move. He compared the brain activity with non-hypnotised controls who just play-acted 
that they were paralysed. The differences between the groups suggest that hypnosis affects neural circuits involved in memory, self-imagery and attention, but despite producing paralysis, hypnosis did not affect the pathways controlling movement. And so hypnosis really is a trick of self-representation. And that study was published in the journal Neuron. And if you want to find out more about any of these stories, the references are all on our website. That's thenakedscientist.com forward slash neuroscience. Coming up, we'll be tackling some of your neuroscience questions. But for now, we'll be hearing about a new technique hot from the laboratory, which may revolutionise the way that we study the nervous system. Cambridge scientists have, for the first time, created functional networks of nerve cells in a glass petri dish just by using a small sample of your hair. They created a network of neurons of an important human brain region called the cerebral cortex, which is involved in memory, attention, perceptual awareness, language and consciousness. This allows us to study an individual human's brain cells and circuits in a dish. The findings were published in Nature Neuroscience and with us to discuss the study is group leader Rick Livesey from Cambridge University. So what we did was we took skin cells from ordinary people turned them backwards into stem cells. And that's a technology that's been around for about five years now. And then what we did was we basically replayed brain development. So turned those stem cells into the part of the brain, the cerebral cortex, which is the bit that makes up about three quarters of the human brain. It's the bit of the brain that makes humans humans. And that essentially allowed us to watch human development, cortical development, happen over three, four months in the lab, which is as long as it takes in, as it were, a real human. And these skin cells that you got from your volunteers, I mean, how did you get, how much skin did you get and where did you get it from? So these are a skin cell called a fibroblast. So you get them from, from little skin biopsies, a couple of millimetres across. So that, that's the current way of doing it. The way that that's becoming quite popular now is to actually take them from the bottom of the hair. So, so a lot of labs now are working on ways to just pull the hair from someone's head and that'll give you enough cells that then you can turn back into stem cells. Can you talk a little bit about how exactly you transform this, this skin cell around the hair follicle into a stem cell and then transform it into a cerebral cortex cell? Sure, so, so in, in normal sort of development, when you're making a mouse or a human or anything, you go through a stage where you start off in one cell, as everybody does, and then you go through a phase where in your little ball of cells, and in that there are what are called embryonic stem cells, and other cells that can make any cell in your body. This technology that was worked out about five years ago by a, a guy called Yamanaka in Japan, he showed that you could take an adult cell, like a skin cell or a muscle cell, and you could, by introducing a couple of genes, you could essentially back those up so that they became very like those embryonic stem cells. So you're, you're, you're like rewinding development back so that they're, they're like a, a very early primordial stem cell. So where we step in is we then said, well, can we find ways to turn those stem cells into what is another type of stem cell, but they're called a, a neural stem cell, but they're the stem cell that specifically make the cerebral cortex. And that was the magic thing. That takes about two weeks. And then once you get those neural stem cells, they then over a long period, churn out these neurons over time, and then the neurons spontaneously wire up to another and start talking to another as they were in the dish, so they make neural networks. So after about three months, you've got these networks of, of nerve cells that are, 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 are what we call firing away, essentially they're active within the dish. And you can measure the electrical activity, record the electrical activity yeah. of this, this neural circuit and make sure exactly. that it is actually functional. Yeah, exactly, which is the, the ultimate proof that they really are what you want them to be. 
So there's some mention of the fact that this might be useful for Alzheimer's research um, and looking at developing new drugs for Alzheimer's. Can you touch on that a little bit and describe exactly why developmental cerebral cortical cells in a dish might be useful for trying to treat Alzheimer's? One of the big problems in Alzheimer's disease research is that other animals don't get the disease. So to make a mouse get Alzheimer's, you've essentially got to put human forms of three or four different genes in and then they get something that looks like Alzheimer's, but it's not quite the real thing. So there's a lot of interest in trying to recreate Alzheimer's disease in the lab. And to do that, what you need is you need to make the part, the nerve cells that normally get the disease, and then you need some way of giving them the disease as it were. So we, we kind of solved the first part, which is Alzheimer's disease is the disease in the cerebral cortex. For the second part, so how would we then sort of get the disease process? We went to people who've got a very high risk of developing the condition. And in that situation, we went to people with Down syndrome. So a lot of people have heard about Down syndrome. It's it's the commonest cause of learning disability still worldwide. But what a lot of people aren't aware of is that people with Down syndrome have a very high risk of of developing dementia or Alzheimer's. So we followed up the the paper you mentioned with another paper this week where we then we took skin cells from people with Down syndrome, turned them into cortical neurons. And what we found then on a very accelerated timescale, again, of the order of months, they then developed the Alzheimer's disease um, sort of features that you'd expect to see in, in, in this living brain, but now in the dish. And so what we, kind of features are you seeing so, in this dish? So classically what you get if you talk to sort of a, a neurologist about what you see in an Alzheimer's brain, there are two sort of classic things you see. They're what are called plaques and tangles. And plaques are sort of lumps of, of protein that form outside the nerve cells. And those are a very early feature, and they're made up of a specific little bit of protein. And then later on, you start getting a protein in the neurons, which is thing called tau, and, and it, it gets abnormally modified, and it moves and accumulates in, in parts of the neuron. And essentially, that's what we see in, in the dish. We start off with these plaques, then we start seeing this protein moving around and, and accumulating. And actually, then we see the, the final sort of end stages, the neurons start dying. And when you compare this to cells that you've taken from a healthy volunteer, you, you wouldn't be seeing... Oh, yeah, you, know, you see none of this from, from healthy volunteer cells. And the reason it's important for us is, is it opens up two things. It lets you both study the disease progression in real time on a reasonable timescale. So this is a disease which takes decades in a human, as it were. So we can test them. We're doing it now. We can test ideas about how do you start, how do you get the plaques, and then if you don't let the plaques form, will you get the later stages of the disease? And where can you intervene in theory? The other obvious big use is to use it for testing drugs, which is the other thing we're doing. So with Alzheimer's disease, there are no drugs which modify the disease process at all. So it's a condition which people have this idea that Alzheimer's disease is sort of like um, an extreme form of normal aging, that people have some memory loss as they get older, and Alzheimer's is just like a nastier version. And and that's a misconception. It's, It's a disease which typically, if you get from diagnosis to death, is on average about seven years. And that's, if you think about some of the nastier cancers, that typically would think about it. If someone said you got a disease, which from diagnosis would kill you within seven years, you know, that's clearly not sort of a, 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 a normal process. So, so it's a disease that kills people, for which we've absolutely no treatment. Currently in the UK, there's over 800,000 people with the condition, 6 million in Europe alone, and the, the numbers are rising. So it's really important that, obviously we would say that there's more and more research, but also as a public health problem, it's increasing every year. And also, I'm, I'm presuming that your new technology for developing these cerebral cortex cells in vitro may have applications and implications for schizophrenia research and autism research as well. So yeah. other disorders of the, of, the, of the brain where the cerebral cortex is implicated. 
Exactly. So that's the idea. Again, so, so what those conditions share is that you're right, they're diseases of cerebral cortex, but they're also diseases for which we don't really have animal models that we can study the disease. So there's, there's a lot of interest in, again, starting from inherited forms of the disease, see can you create a model in the dish and then start moving on to the more common sort of sporadic forms. That's Rick Livesey from Cambridge University describing how he's been converting skin from the scalp to functional cerebral cortex networks and creating a new way to look at Alzheimer's. Sticking with the theme of the birth of brain cells, I visited the Gurdon Institute in Cambridge to quiz Professor Andrea Brand with questions in from listeners about the use of stem cells, the cells which give rise to the new nerve cells in the brain. And the first question was from Emily Caesar via Facebook asking, where do you get stem cells from? So Rick was talking earlier about the new technology of creating stem cells and Fred Gage was talking about neural stem cells that are in the hippocampus of rats and humans. But how else can we get stem cells? There are stem cells in different animals and in different places in different animals. And for example, in my lab, we work on stem cells in the fruit fly, Drosophila melanogaster. And uh, in particular, we work on stem cells that are found in the brain. And in this case, of course, we don't have to invade a patient or use an embryo. We can just take fruit fly embryos or fruit fly adults and isolate stem cells from them and study what it is that makes a stem cell special. And this neatly leads on to our next question, which is from Apisek Tawari. And he's asking, how do you direct the cell's differentiation? So what exactly makes a stem cell change into a specialised cell? So this is a question that many, many people are interested in and many different labs are trying to answer. And it depends very much on what type of cell you want to get the stem cell to generate. Each cell in the body expresses a particular subset of genes that tell it how to behave, what to look like, and if it's a neuron, what type of neuron to be, what signals to send out, what signals to receive. And so one area of investigation that's uh, very exciting at the moment is trying to discover all the different genes that are on or off in a particular type of cell. And if you have this knowledge, then you can try to turn on the appropriate genes to make a stem cell to make a particular type of neuron or a muscle cell or really any type of cell that you want. And then lastly, once we have stem cells or differentiated cells, what can we use them for? So Theo Gibson has been in touch via Facebook saying, have stem cells been successfully used to treat neurological diseases in humans? If so, where? The brain, the spinal cord or the pinky toe? Well, this is um, really something that we, we would all like to see happen in the not too distant future, but it's still early days. And there are some studies going on at the moment on using stem cells, transplanting stem cells into the brains of stroke patients. But as I say, it's still very, very early days. So I I wouldn't say that there's been successful treatments yet. Um, However, there are some very encouraging work going on in repairing defects in the eye. And I think that will probably be the first place where stem cells really come into their own, perhaps in restoring uh, photoreceptors or um, restoring sight. So I think that's probably where the first advances will be seen. In terms of transplantation into the brain, the other possibility, which may be a little bit further in the future, there are stem cells in the adult brain of healthy individuals. And these stem cells were the cells that gave rise to the neurons in the brain in the first place. And so if we could somehow prompt those cells to generate new neurons, then you could imagine this might be a way of repairing the nervous system after damage or neurodegenerative disease. And that's why it's so important to understand what makes a stem cell a stem cell and what one has to 
do to get that stem cell to produce particular cell types. Thank you. The last question, and this again is from Abhishek Tawari, and he's asking, could stem cells actually cause cancer? Well, a few years ago, there was proposed the cancer stem cell hypothesis, which suggested that many tumors might actually arise from stem cells. And I think that there's still some debate about that, but there is more evidence that either stem cells or the cells they give rise to can, under particular conditions, give rise to cancer. And again, coming back to the fruit fly, there was some very nice work done by Cayetano Gonzalez's lab in Barcelona, where he showed that if you mutate certain genes in stem cells, they do start to overgrow and can form tumors. And in fact, if you take those tumors, you can transplant them from one animal to the next, and they continue to grow and metastasize. And so this is quite a nice model for looking at cancer that are generated from stem cells and what are the signals that prevent stem cells and their becoming tumorigenic. And this is something that uh, we, amongst others, are working on to try to understand what goes wrong in the stem cell or its daughters that give rise to tumors. So we may be able to use stem cells to actually find a new way of treating cancer? Um, well, that's that's um, a hope. Some of the basic research that's going on in various different model systems, like in fruit flies or in um, mouse, for example, once we get at the basic biology, seem to be well conserved. That was Professor Andrea Brand at the Gurdon Institute, Cambridge University. If you've got any burning questions about your brain and the nervous system, just email them to neuroscience at thenakedscientists.com. Tweet us at Naked Neuroscience or post on our Facebook page and we'll do our best to answer them for you. And finally, we present our fascinating fact for the month with Professor John Gurdon from Cambridge University. It is possible to take a tiny piece of skin from an animal or human and to grow that into functional cells such as heart. This has been done in some elegant work by Byrne and others. A series of steps are involved, but the end result is that you can see thousands of cells beating in unison in the laboratory, all under culture conditions. It means usually cultured in a flask or on a substrate, These cells then behave just like you might hope for a heart so that they are beating in unison and, as I say, several thousand of them. However, when these cells are transplanted to a recipient, they do not integrate properly into the recipient's own heart. They go on behaving independently and are therefore not readily useful to a patient. The nervous system work is comparable. It has been possible to inject some brain cells into a Parkinson's patient and the patient shows some benefit of these implanted cells for a few months. However, in a particular case, such a patient eventually died some 17 years later and they found that the implanted cells were still alive or their progeny were, over this long period of time, but had actually made no useful contribution to relief of the Parkinson's condition. Having got cells which seem to work very effectively in culture in the laboratory, there is still some problem in getting such cells to integrate functionally 
into a recipient. It seems to me that this is one of the future challenges of this field. It's really rather remarkable to me that one can go from a tiny piece of skin to functional heart or functional brain cells in the laboratory, and yet that final step of getting them to actually integrate and continue their useful function in the patient does still have to be solved. That was Professor John Gurdon from Cambridge University presenting his fascinating facts on the progression with birth of brain cells or neural stem cell biology and what we have yet to learn in order to successfully integrate new cells into the brain and body. That's all for now. I'll be back again next month finding out if there are drugs that could make us all smarter and asking, should all of us be taking them? Plus, we'll be delving into the adolescent brain to find out exactly what is going on there. The Naked Scientist podcast has been brought to you in association with the Wellcome Trust and in partnership with the British Neuroscience Association. See you next month to open your minds. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.